Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we discuss what our clients and customers are asking us about our recent strategic asset allocation and our latest tactical views. With Sarah Gresty, Head of Investments, Miles Sherry, Wealth Manager, and Luke Pierce, Senior Investment Strategist. Welcome back to another edition of Word on the Street. Today, I thought it'd be helpful to see what our clients are making of everything going on and the changes to our long-term strategic asset allocation, and also try and understand some of the thinking that drove those changes. So I've asked Miles Sherry to join us again. Thank you. Miles works with our wealth management clients in London and Luke Pierce from our investment team. So Miles, you are a useful earpiece for clients, if I can say that, (laughs) as you do get the feedback directly. What conversations have you been having with the clients you look after? Well, thanks for having me back. And I think it's fair to say since I was last on here, which was probably a good few months ago, an awful lot has changed in the world. So it's great to see our team making changes to to reflect that really. So I think starting off the, the most important point for, for clients and customers, investors of us to understand is really that the strategic asset allocation is an exceptionally detailed and rigorous process. I used to be in the investment team, and so I can uh, I can very much attest to that. Months of work goes into it, and the change in allocations to different asset classes does not directly equate to a view on any particular asset class per se. That process was well explained on here a couple of weeks back by the team. So my message therefore has really been to trust the process. It sounds simple, but the last material change is made back in the first quarter of 2021 proved generally very beneficial to our funds and portfolios. And look, hopefully these new changes will ensure those same portfolios and funds remain well diversified for many different outcomes the world may present us in the years ahead, whilst also reflecting going back to what we said earlier, a very different interest rate environment to where we were a couple of years back. But what's interesting is that while obviously nothing's guaranteed, expected total returns across all our risk profiles, I think it's fair to say, which is forecast over a 10-year period, have actually slightly increased while the expected risk to achieve those returns has come down a tad. So Luke, just to that point, is it fair to say a lot of that uplift is really coming from a higher assumed long-term cash rate? Yeah, I think that's right. So, you know, as you said, compared to our last strategic asset allocation or SAA refresh, uh, total returns have increased. And that is across all different risk profiles. As you said, a big chunk of that will be due to higher cash returns. We've seen obviously central banks increase policy rates at an enormous pace and magnitude. Um, But actually our best estimates for excess returns. So these are the returns that you can expect on average over and above those cash returns. They've actually come down a little bit. And and the only other thing that I would note is um, we're obviously talking a lot about expected returns here or excess returns. When we're talking about this, they are uncertain estimates. So we cannot precisely know what expected returns will be, um, particularly for the riskier asset classes. If we could, it would make our jobs a lot, a lot easier. easier. Yeah. <laughs> Your job's not going to get easier. No, no, that is part and parcel of the job. Uh, it comes with the territory. Um, so yeah, just, just to be clear, we shouldn't be considering, I don't think we're going to discuss numbers here today anyway, but we shouldn't be considering these as precise forecasts. And we talked a lot about that uncertainty. We think very, very carefully about how to mitigate some of that inherent uncertainty throughout the process um, that is chiefly achieved through through diversification, which, as you said, Paul and JP talked a lot about on, on the previous podcast. 
Makes sense. And if we look at the changes to that long-term allocation you just alluded to, it obviously depends on how much risk clients and customers are taking within our portfolios and funds. But I think it's fair to say that one of the key, most noteworthy general themes that really stood out to me was a particularly large increase in investment-grade bonds, as well as a pretty large decrease in high yields and emerging market bonds, which is, of course, the riskier part of the bond market. So as I said earlier, the changes, they're not short-term views. They're not an absolute view on any of those particular asset classes. But what sort of assumptions made by you and the team perhaps contributed in part to, to some of those changes? That's a good point. I would stress that again around, you know, whenever you're building portfolios and you're thinking about it from an asset allocation perspective, it's always a relative game. You cannot consider the changes in risk returns to one asset class in isolation, you have to trade it off against all the other asset classes within the portfolios. In terms of inputs, there's a number of different inputs really centered around risk and return for all the different asset classes. Uh, and then we do a lot of work about how you think about each of those asset classes interact with each other to kind of obviously come up with a hopefully a well-diversified portfolio. As I said, we won't repeat the whole process that, that Paul and JP described on the previous episode. A couple of things I, I would kind of point out what's a little bit unusual, I think, um, doing a strategic asset allocation refresh at the moment is quite unusual market conditions at the moment. So what we're seeing is a very steep inversion of the yield curve. So that means longer maturity bond yields are quite a bit lower than what you're seeing at shorter maturity bonds at the moment. And generally what that means is when you're thinking about forward-looking long-term returns for those asset classes is they look slightly less attractive compared to cash rates um, at the moment. So as we discussed earlier, our expected excess returns, so over and above cash for fixed income asset classes, is down slightly versus previously. But ultimately, what the, the process or the model is really saying by that having that decrease in high yield and emerging market bonds is that the risk reward in that asset class relative to all other asset classes, including investment grade, is quite poor at the moment. So that, that's really fundamentally why you've seen a lower allocation to high yield and emerging market bonds at the moment. But again, I would stress it doesn't just trade it off versus investment grade. It also considers equities, commodities, alternative trading strategies. Um, but as I said, it will be a function of that lower expected excess return and also the riskiness. Of the I think it goes back to what I was saying. It's very complex and we're not saying, you know, someone should go and just buy investment grade bonds. That's absolutely not what no, this is about. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And that, again, that's a really, this is part of a broader portfolio decision and how that interacts and, and the risk and return on offer relative to all other asset classes. Um, so yeah, it's very much within a portfolio context. That's interesting. So we've been talking a lot over the last, actually the last three podcasts around kind of strategic asset allocation. But Luke, that's not all that you and the team have been doing recently. I've seen that you've also been making some changes on a tactical basis. So looking at a shorter term view where you make smaller tweaks. And actually, there's been some things which have been a little bit more interesting there. Do you want to share around some of the decisions you've made? Yeah, sure. So uh, again, just to, just to reiterate, so we have a strategic asset allocation that's very much the long-term allocations for clients, and we have the tactical. We actually see these as two completely distinct processes. So that, that might seem a little bit odd, but the, the reason for thinking about them completely separately is what drives asset class returns in the long term and what drives them in the short term are very, very different. So you have to have a completely different framework for, for thinking about it. 
But yes, in terms of our tactical asset allocation, we've become a little bit more positive on developed government bonds at the moment. So there's some nuances depending on which country or region that you're talking about. But developed market economies now, we think, are experiencing quite rapid disinflationary trends. I think the UK is probably a little bit slower versus uh, US and European counterparts here. But, but generally speaking, we, we think that's true. And actually, on a forward-looking basis, if you consider some of the drivers of inflation, we think these trends look set to continue. So supply constraints have normalized. That should help keep a lid on goods prices. We think that U.S. housing will actually be quite a material drag on inflation over the coming months. It's quite well-known kind of effects about how that's lagged within the U.S. CPI, which I won't bore everyone with. But even if you look at some of the more timelier private sector measures, that trend still looks set to continue. And then we also think actually the, the, there's been big concerns around elevated levels of wages and how that's going to put pressures on prices. And we actually think the bits of inflation that are sensitive to wages, the risks there are probably a little bit overstated. So we actually okay. think that, that wages, generally speaking, um, look set to continue falling. And again, we think that will ease inflationary pressures. And then just to kind of add to that, if those trends do keep persisting, I think you could also see quite a shift in central bank rhetoric and that could also be a tailwind for developed government bonds uh, over the coming months as well. So just on that tactical asset allocation point which obviously as you say the the smaller short-term tweaks the other thing I noticed is you and the team also slightly decreased your exposure to developed market equities while slightly increasing the exposure to emerging market equities whereas actually going back to the long-term allocation we actually saw kind of the flip reverse in some respects based on on that longer term view so you just want to maybe unpick that a little bit as well yeah and again it boils back to the two processes being quite quite distinct so the sea changes and, and how that affects that that doesn't affect our tactical positioning at all because our tactical positioning is relative to that strategic benchmark so the changing of that tactical equity view is actually really closing that active position. So what we've effectively done is gone back to our strategic benchmark weightings for developed market equities and also emerging market equities. And really the, why we've done that is if, if we go back to why we had that active view on in the first place, it was really predicated on slowing global growth momentum and tighter US monetary policy. And that backdrop has typically been quite a favorable one for developed market equities to, to outperform their emerging market equity counterparts. So emerging market equities tend to be a little bit more cyclical uh, and they tend to have an inverse relationship with, with the US dollar as well. But really our, our conviction here has, has waned a little bit. Um, we're seeing much stronger than expected growth expectations and, and global growth momentum. Uh, and as we talked about, we think that, that we're likely in and around the peak of US policy rates as well. Very useful indeed. I mean, just finally, it would be remiss of us not to comment on the economic data that we've seen so far this week. And I know there's more to come next week. No doubt lots for you and the team to, to keep your eye on on that short term tactical side of things. What's kind of caught your eye? Really, it's just a big week for policymakers at the, at the moment. So we... You're staying glued to your screens, basically. <laughs> yes, very much so. It's hard to take uh, our eyes off them. But yeah, so we, we're, we're obviously recording this, this Thursday morning. So we had the Fed last night. So they hiked another 25 basis points. That was fully expected and, and fully priced into the markets. Really, the question for the Fed and investors alike is whether that will indeed be the last hike in this cycle. And actually, I was kind of listening to, to Chair Powell at his press conference. And what really struck me was it's quite clear that they want to retain optionality. He stressed a number of times that they're really going to be making a decision meeting by meeting 
uh, and that they don't want to commit to anything and really their decisions will be based off incoming data. Um, I think they get two inflation prints uh, and another two jobs reports between now and the September meeting. So you could see a little bit more volatility and a little bit of narrative shifting between now and then as well. You've also got the ECB later today, so they are expected to hike rates again. But again, investors will be looking for any clues around a change in narrative and whether they're likely to take a slightly more cautious approach, given that we've seen recent data in Europe come in pretty disappointingly, actually. Um, so activity data in particular is, is really softening. Uh, and there's still a lot of lagged effects from the hikes that have been enacted so far to work their way through the economy. Uh, and you can really see that in the recent survey data from the ECB on bank lending. So credit standards are becoming more stringent. Demand for credit is tailing off. And actually the number of business or enterprise loans is, is being rejected or being rejected is, is increasing at quite, quite a large pace. And then finally, I promise this is the last central bank meeting I'll talk about, is really just the Bank of Japan. This is probably under the radar for, for a lot of people, but they, they meet Friday. That will be widely watched, really, because there's been a lot of speculation about whether they will or won't change their yield curve control policy. So this is where they keep a lid or they pin bond yields at a certain level to ensure that monetary policy in Japan remains easy and accommodative. Comments from Governor Ueda basically has downplayed any change to that stance, but the BOJ has been known to, to surprise markets and catch yeah. them off guard. So nothing should be taken for, for granted at this point. And then finally, in China, we've seen that Chinese policymakers and authority theirs are basically enacting more stimulus measures to help kind of shore up the property market and, and the economy more broadly, particularly focusing on the consumer side as well. Um, so we've seen a little bit of relief in Chinese sensitive assets there. But I would note that the scale of stimulus that they're talking about this time around falls pretty short of where we've seen them intervene and, and provide support in, in kind of recent years. So yes, lots, lots going on, lots to keep our eye on. I'm sure there'll be plenty more in the coming weeks and months. Excellent. So, Luke, I can see you really are going to be glued to your screen <laughs> for the next few months. Miles, Luke, brilliant to have you both on today. Thank you. And thank you, listeners, for joining us. We'll be back next week for another Word on the Street. All investments can fall as well as rise in value, and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.